City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, and City Limits roars, roars onto air. No, it doesn't as I built my headphones. <laughs> headphones. Uh, and um, I'm sitting here... Not quite solo. Andy's over there pressing buttons, and he might have to be part of the show today, the way it's looking. Um, Adrian Whitehead, I hope, will be here shortly. He's, I think he's coming in today, I'm pretty sure. And I'm Kevin Healy, and this is City Limits, and it's the second Wednesday of the month. It's our, it's our um, normal energy and related issues day. And we are going to be talking uh, in the second half of the show to Miriam Lyons from, from uh, GetUp, who... Um, is going to talk to us about electricity pricing and why the prices are as they are and the whole structure of the electricity system and doubtless will therefore also get onto the furor over wind-blowing towers over in South Australia and the, the furor that's created among the, the fossil lot. Um, so um, we'll, we'll talk about all those issues in the second half and uh, Miriam will fill us in. And hopefully, as I say, Adrian will be here shortly. But um, anyway, we'll see what happens. Look, I'm going to open by pouring a cup of tea just to get the show on the way. Did you don't? No, you're right, Andy. You've got, got our coffee oh, here. Oh, coffee. Good heavens. Yeah. Okay, I'll just pour this. Single this morning. There it is. A cup of tea. Right. And... Um, the uh, just just one thing I, I thought I'd raise, um, Andy, and um, you're you're the commenter, you're, you're the commentator today. No, St- stick close to that mic. Yeah, <laughs> I got a thing in the mail the other day saying, "Join us for a chat." Flemington Road Interchange upgrade, and there's uh, that. In fact, um, last week, Saturday, Wednesday, and Saturday, there were discussions uh, in the North Melbourne Community Centre and at a pub in Flemington Road, and. For any answers you want to know, work is underway on the CityLink Tuller widening. Now, this is the one, of course, that forced mm. a tree to come down a few weeks ago and people tried to protect that. Why they can't make the... Why the tree can't be more important than the freeway and they can't work around it, I've got no idea. But anyway, a key part is the upgrade, etc. These works include changes to access from and things in the local area. Come and meet the CityLink Tuller widening project team to talk about works. Now... I raise this because this is how they operate these days. Their so-called consultation by all these things, big roads, etc., is to have a, a discussion day where you come along and you walk up to the table and you talk to them, but they, don't, they no longer have meetings where everyone can get together and if there's opposition, it can actually get together mm-hmm. and work yeah. and knock them off. So it's a very clever tactic where you don't actually have to face the opposition. If someone confronts you and you're one person at a desk, well, you just talk to them and yeah. talk them down. And uh, and even at meetings, their tactic always is to try to get you to talk about the engineering aspects of the project rather than oppose it. You know, once yeah, you start right. talking about the technical details of the project, you're into it. Um, you, you're not knocking mm. it off. And that's another one of their tactics. But I just wanted to raise that because that landed in the mail. I didn't waste my time going anywhere near it. But um, but knowing what the result would be. Mm. <laughs> but uh, I just thought I'd raise that because it is the way they operate and... Uh, you avoid. In fact, I'll, I'll tell a story. It's, it's an interesting story. Um, some years ago, when we were when we were opposing the Upfield Railway Line, 
they did they did hold and they wanted to close the railway line to make and make a light rail and more room for trucks etc with Sydney yeah. Road and all that and we you know it's the one campaign I actually won which is a pity because it's ruined a perfectly good record of loss after loss <laughs> but anyway um they they had a meeting at Brunswick Town Hall of local people in the area and they were holding these meetings right along the line and we got up and said um look, why don't you have one big meeting of everyone involved so we can all get together and talk about it rather than divide mm, and conquer? Makes sense. Makes sense. And the bloke from the Met, or it wasn't called the Met, whatever it was, the public, anyway, the public transport authority of the time, yeah. he got up and said that you couldn't hold a public meeting of that sort. And we said, why not? And he said, because public meetings attract the wrong sort of people. <laughs> That's yeah, what right. he said. Like That's what public. he said. <laughs> That's people like us. <laughs> and so, and in fact, I had a, a lovely moment. A year or two later, I was asked to address some sort of breakfast working session at the, the Public Transport Authority and, um, and talk about, and ironically uh, in all that, talk about uh, community consultation processes and you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And uh, and this bloke was in the audience, so I pointed out the story and, and pointed yeah, at right. him, so I let him have it. Yeah, yeah it's ironic, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there you are. Um, just um, on a on a well, that's serious enough, but on a really serious one, the Americans this week, and let's not get onto the other business in America this week. This is that that one slide. Um, they they. They might be aware that 97 won vote in the House, actually. They, they, they overrode a veto by Obama against giving victims of 9-11 the uh, right to sue the Saudi government. Mm. And they've actually now allowed that to happen. And, of course, what the Americans are saying, uh, what, or at least what those who oppose giving this right are saying, is that this could open the the gate this yeah, could open right. the gate for Americans to be sued all over the place yeah. even though that they refuse to they refuse to subscribe to the world court of justice <laughs> all they do with the you know these criminal world criminal courts is say we recommend someone we don't like should be tried by them but we won't be tried and we yeah. rule that we don't be tried uh, but you know all, all their all their human rights abuses and bombings and war crimes around the world could uh, yeah, come, <laughs> come home and that's that's their worry not and of course because Saudi also is a close friend, and in fact, the um, the lobbying against the legislation was funded by the Saudi government, but also by major corporations like General Electric and Dow Chemical and others, who of course um, have interests in in yeah. Saudi. Yeah, so it's. But I, I found, and I suppose we should. That does relate also to something that did happen the other night, the day on that debate, where um, where um, Clinton said that if if, and I think now it looks like probably when she becomes president, uh, she will um, move to have Russia and Syria um, tried for war crimes. And I thought to myself, my God. And then shortly after that, um, the other bloke, Trump, said, uh, you'll end up in jail if I'm there. And I thought, mm. well, he'll put her in jail for the wrong reasons. She ought to be in jail for war crimes. Mm. Um, the Americans, they're like, America to say someone could get sued for war crimes, re regardless of... Mm. Um, is 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 the hypocrisy at its highest level? It's quite a scary time, I think, well, isn't it? What? <laughs> yeah, uh, mm. bewildered watching the debates. Well, it's yes, just... that's right. anyway. That was uh, <laughs> that had me absolutely fascinated. Mm.
the uh, but yeah so um anyway um, and of course she should have alongside the dock with her uh, bush and uh, all the other lot over there all the neocons and blair and howard and our lot who've mm. continued the war ever since um they should all go and yet they're the ones who say well now and they they scream and yell now i don't you know there's certainly no justification in bombing civilians at all in any mm. sort of war but for someone who's to be doing it for reons to then take the high ground well, uh, re- re- again, regardless, is um, is amazing. Trump was pretty much justifying killing families, wasn't he? Not warning anyone they're going to go in and. Well, yeah, which is what they do anyway with yeah. their drones. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. he just wants to continue the current practice, obviously. Yeah, oh, and this is a lot. Also, talk about terrorizing civilians who you know drop drones all over the place, and uh, mm. of course the. They're directed from somewhere in the Pentagon, so it's not really yeah, war, is it? Pine gaff. <laughs> That's right. They they decide who should live and who should die. Uh, another one. One of my long term listeners will know this is one of my pet hates. The uh, tennis centre, and my pet hate for the tennis centre, as everyone knows, is that it said, well, one, it was originally the site of the Yarrabank speakers long before television, etc. Mm. When there used to be. Uh, you know, the communists and the Christians of various sorts and everyone else would get down there on Sundays and stomp around and people would yeah, go down. Okay. And a bit like in a, Hyde Park in London. Yeah, yeah yes, a great source of debate, the Yarra yeah, Bank, and that was that knew. was the scene. And then for many years it was also the um, the end uh, of the May Day March, and the May Day March in those days was huge in Melbourne and yeah. used to always march. So the, May Day, the Yarra Bank had a real working-class history, and it was given by the... Kane government, Kane the second Kane government, Kane junior government to the tennis lot. And so now you've got the elite of Melbourne mm. enjoying what was a real working class spot. Yeah. But at, and the, and we were, every time they extend or put a new roof on or something, of course, the public purse comes to the rescue and yet they charge fortunes and Tennis Australia would definitely be very, very rich indeed. Mm. But now they're, they're opening a bridge from Biramangwa Ma to... Um, the new Tandoram Bridge to a revamped grand entrance. So you'll go in a new entrance um, from next year and it's going to be wonderful and then there'll be bands in the park and it's all just lovely. And um, Grand Slam Oval, previously an area for bands, will become a food and entertainment precinct along the lines of those at Wimbledon in the US and French Open. You'll be able to, you can have a Paris Quarter with crepes, macaroons and wine, an English pub and garden zone and a big apple area with hot dogs and burgers. You can yeah. pretend you're not even here. <laughs> Wonderful, that's right. <laughs> if only. Uh, and so all that. But it, why I raise that is I'm assuming this bridge they're building across there is being funded by us, not yeah. by the tennis people, to That'd make it. Uh, but of course, because it's there and it changes things and things are so much better, one assumes the prices will also go up and uh, the plebs Always. will pay. Hmm. The other one I find fascinating is that that area outside, when you, you see it on telly, with people watching the telly outside, they actually pay money. And it, uh, to sit there on the hill. Yeah, I mean, and I think every day it's, it's a bit more to, as you get toward the finals. Yeah. Uh, people actually pay money to walk in, sit and watch the telly <laughs> when they could be sitting at home yeah. watching the same thing. Um, can can you explain that to me? me. No, I'm not <laughs> no. sure about that. Right. Kevin, but, yeah. No, that's, that's shades of that, of that famous old uh, Looney cartoon with the bloke watching the sunrise on telly and it's outside his window. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or sunset, whichever way it was, it doesn't matter. It's the sun. Uh, yeah. 
So there you are. The other one we raised a few weeks ago, um, well, one I did raise a few weeks ago, during the election campaign, I mentioned, in fact, that George Brandis could be in trouble for misleading Parliament uh, once Parliament got back. And, of course, it's all hitting the proverbial fan now, or the proverbial's hitting the fan. Uh, And I just find his explanation... It's one of those legal tricks of people like Brandis, who, as, I was, as I said yesterday in the week, that was though if 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 I was if I hit court on some case and someone said to me, "Oh, we got George Brandis to defend you," I think I'd throw myself at the mercy of the court and plead guilty because you know I I, I think he'd, he'd no. be dreadful. Anyway, he'd be looking after himself, but he is of a most gracious Majesty's Council. He must be senior, <laughs> and but this blew with a Solicitor General, but he. Now, he said he told Parliament he'd consulted him over this new rule he's made that everyone has to go to him first. They can't go straight to the Solicitor General. Uh, now, he, the Solicitor General says, we, well, I wasn't consulted. But it now turns out Brandis's definition of consultation is he talked to him about something else. They had a conversation, but this wasn't even raised. Yeah, right. But that was consultation. Yeah. So he didn't lie. He made a check his journal. Huh? Didn't lie. That's right. That's right. So that's very good, George. Very good. Legalese. Um, some time ago also, this is where I started out a second ago, a minute ago or something, uh, the... We raised the point that when the U.S. vice president was here, one of the issues he wanted to raise was the marine base at Darwin and who should fund it. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. he signed up here around the time I remember saying that, but that, that somehow the U.S. thinks that we should be funding their yeah, base yeah, ain't it? in they Darwin. Ain't that's right. Yeah, that's right. Border Darwin. Anyway, we've now reached an agreement um, for the 2,500 Marines to, um, to be there. And... Um, they got, there was agreed to rotate U.S. Air Force planes through the top end, Navy ships through Australian ports, and by 2017 build a permanent force of 2,500 Marines in the country's north. Uh, now, last week when he was in Washington, Turnbull got together with the U.S. Defence Secretary, Ash Carter, who's a delightful man, and, well, he's just, so are they both, I guess, um, and they've agreed to an in-principle deal, and Australia and the US will share the cost for more than $2 million in infrastructure investment in northern Australia. That's infrastructure investment for the US to bring mm. its train killer mm. lot here, yeah, mm. and all that sort of stuff. And, of course, it's all also part of their their ongoing attempts to, to lure China into war, which we've been dragged along with. Um, so, in as well as the ongoing costs of the initiative over the full 25-year life of the agreement, she said, she being Maurice Payne, the Defence Minister, without divulging how much each nation was paying, well, the two million, I suppose half of two million is two billion, two billion is one billion, but then 25-year ongoing costs we'd have no idea of, but I imagine they're not going to be cheap. This marks an important milestone in the implementation of the force posture initiatives and ensures that our approach to cost sharing is well considered and sustainable. In other words, we 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 completely capitulated, I suspect. The force posture initiatives are consistent with Australia's long-standing strategic interests in supporting US engagement in our region in a manner that promotes regional security and stability. Now, we've also done a deal with Singapore. And um 
the Singapore Prime Minister's coming here. We're pleased to hear he's landing today, in fact. His visit will cement a $2 billion agreement under which 14,000 Singaporean troops will rotate through Queensland every year. Singapore will foot the $2 billion bill to fund the expansion of military bases in Shoalwater Bay north of Rockhampton and in Townsville, enabling it to increase, etc. So at least they're footing we the bill. But even so, we're <laughs> not sure we actually want them running around our country mm. anyway. And, of course, Shoalwater Bay has long been... There's long been protests about the use of it as a um, as a military place and, and for military testing and uh, and the use of depleted uranium there, etc. Yeah. So um, we'll yeah. take their money. Yeah, that's right. So that's it. And uh, speaking of defence, the Herald Sun had a headline: "Last Line of Defence," and they're currently running a campaign saying we need more coppers. Uh, which we need desperately, of course. Uh, mm. I was thinking, you know, particularly at the rallies and things, when you see loads of them yeah. there in the horse, you think, of which there are a few more. Exactly. Feels safer. Um, uh, well, there's actually vigilante lots running around the western, the, yeah, the sort of the western suburbs, Carolyn Springs, Plumpton, Hillside, Taylor's Hill, Burnside, and Burnside Heights. Community patrols of around 35 respond to as many as a dozen calls a night from worried residents. And there's a photo of a bloke, they've got his his back to us, and he's got what looks like a torch, but it could also be a weapon, a baton Mm -hmm. or something. And they've all got these sort of things in their hands, or I'll show them to you. So they can make your citizens arrested. Well, apparently they're the vigilantes. They're they're preserving the peace. Don't they look great? We're seeing them from behind, but... The same photo was used, say, of black kids in a gang. They'd be saying, isn't this dreadful? They have yeah. to be dragged off the streets. Yeah. And they're encouraging these people to, to run, yeah, roam the streets. Start and, the torch. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Do what they like. Isn't mm. that wonderful? Um, and uh, just I thought this one worth mentioning because there was a study done you need a study for this, don't you? You just have to walk on the street and have a look. Um, Sydney and Melbourne commuters really do spend longer stuck in traffic than the rest of Australia, according to the first collation of aggravated data trips across Australia. Oh, now, surprise, why would you need surprise. a study to come up with that one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Kevin. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> Gee. Oh, never, would never imagine. Yeah. No. Yeah, that's, there was actually a, it's interesting study. There was, a, there was a, an academic study, in, I mean, two tertiary research study, and I support tertiary research, but sometimes you have to wonder. They did a study of, of how you control the amount of salt people eat on their food, and the conclusion was that it came down to the size of the holes in the salt shaker. All right. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I like to grind mine. <laughs> I mean... Wow. Wow, that's higher education. Sip of tea. Sip, that's right, that's right. <laughs> Sip of tea. We'll go through a couple more things, then we'll go to our guest. Um, oh, a couple of things. You know, this is one I, I did want to raise this one. I mean, there's just a couple of headlines, so I don't need to go on. Uh, now's time to cut company tax. Australia cannot afford not to cut company tax. Their articles in the Financial Review in the last few weeks. Um, the one I just quoted was Jennifer Westacott, the Chief Executive of the Business Council of Australia. But there was one yesterday. Uh, co-written by the four big, the world's four big coins, Del- Deloitte, KPMG, um, Price Waterhouse, the, the big yep. four, and EY, the big four. And they open open by saying, it is not often competitors, well, competitors, I mean, 
competitors like the banks, stand together and share a common view. We're always looking for that differentiator, that key point to make us stand out. But on one key issue, there was no difference between us. And the key issue is we must slash business taxes. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's um, exactly what I need right now. Right now, we all need it badly. No, well, we're better off. I'm sorry, you don't. You're being cynical, I know, but please stop that. That concludes saying this parliament has a real live opportunity to make it, rather than a real dead one, I suppose, to make an economic difference, take the politics out of it and do something that will boost Australia's competitiveness, create more local jobs and contribute to our shared prosperity for years to come. That's all they care about. Our shared prosperity. prosperity. Isn't that wonderful? uh, anyway, uh, but then there's a, it's not all great because um, there was also a story that once they're cut, there might have to be changes to the franking situation with with shares where people you know get real deals with this franking uh, because it would the franking would then be adjusted to the wrong level of taxation and so people could miss out there. So you're yeah, going to have right. to do some readjustment along the line. I just want to mention it to you, Andy. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, right. Um, now, one I found absolutely fascinating, and I'll wade through here and find it, uh, was a story to do with um, – here it is. There's an industrial relations story, and I'll finish on this note and go to our guest. But and I'm not, I won't use the words because they're a bit ordinary, but um, – BHP coal sacking of a mine worker for calling labour hire employees scabby on grounds that scab was worse than the C word and slut and on a par with nigger has been ruled unfair and the bloke got reinstated. But there was a conversation between a, a sort of semi-boss bloke, an overseer sort of bloke and the worker and they were um, pick up the dig, the dig rate, you useless C, um, the bloke shot back, all you do is suck dick. Um, and the conversation went on. But then he, he accused the um, he accused the contract workers of being scabby. Buggers will come and jump on it anyway, he said. And for that, he was sacked. So all those other words. Yeah. Just regular nothing. building. Sack, Call someone yeah. a scab, you get sacked. Yeah. But all those other words you can. So that's 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 mm. good, actually. I mean, you can go to one. Not that I think they should use particularly the, the female genital, mm. I think, very sexist word, but but um, you can call them what you like as long as you don't call them a scab, oh, apparently. that's good to know. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's wonderful. So carte blanche to workers there, yeah. apart from scab. But the although he was he – was the, the sacking was ruled unfair, um, Paula Spencer, the commissioner, said only because – BHP hadn't made it clear that they regarded scab as a sackable offence, but if they do make it clear, you can be sacked for that as well. Yep. So, you okay. can, so, but you can still use all the others, apparently. So, oh, yeah. yeah, I'm sure <laughs> they've been used plenty in relation to <laughs> BHP. Yeah, of course they. They well, imagine how BHP would be shocked. Well, they're not shocked at the other words; they're only shocked at scab. Yeah, yeah, feelings. That's right. Okay, and on the line we've got Miriam Lyons from um, Mop Up. Not Mop Up. I used to work with him. Get Up. She's with, <laughs> and uh, and uh, Get Up um, has uh, obviously looked at questions like electricity pricing, etc. In fact, um, Miriam is one of our experts on that. I'm going to give her a bit of praise at the start. And Miriam um, thought we'd have a look at this today because we've been promising listeners for some time. The the privatisation of electricity here in Victoria and gas, we were told at that time by 
Kennett and Stockdale, the the Premier and Treasurer at the time, that this was going to be far more efficient, that prices would come down, that we'd all love it. Um, A lot of people feel it hasn't quite worked that way. Um, What's your attitude to that? The success of privatisation, how's it been, do you think? Yeah, well, Ah, I don't know about you, but uh, over the last (laughs) several years, I haven't really noticed a massive drop-off in the um, electricity bills that I've been getting. So that promise that we were going to have massive cuts in our bills from privatisation and deregulation doesn't really seem to have worked out so well. No. Um, We did a big report uh, a couple of months ago that looked at um, the price gouging by the big three retailers in Australia um, and one of the things that I think is really revealing is that before privatisation and deregulation of retail prices, um, the retail price was a very, very tiny component of most household bills, and it's now grown to well over a third of household bills. So, um, you know, when you talk to, uh, you know, a lot of people in the industry, uh, even when you talk to some of the regulators who I think have been sort of mentally captured by the idea of free markets and uh, sort of failing to notice that they're not delivering in reality, they'll tell you that, oh, well, you know, look, it's this, we've got all this fantastic competition. Look, you know, there's more competition in the wholesale market. There's more competition in the retail market. Um, when we put the report out showing just how high the, the big retail markups were from the from the big three, that's AGL and Origin and Energy Australia. Um, uh, in New South Wales, the IPART, the Independent Pricing and Regulatory Tribunal, um, came out and said, well, you know, we have a different idea of what it means to say that competition's working and that the market is working. Um, but lots of people could theoretically get cheaper prices, therefore the market is working. We're like, mm, I'm sorry, but theoretically getting cheaper prices doesn't actually mean that competition is delivering for consumers when most people aren't getting those prices. No, and non-theoretically, of course, they are getting a lot more, so I suppose it is working for them. Um, th- that was a report by Bruce Mountain, wasn't it, of yeah, CME, that's right. Energy Consultancy, mm. yeah. Um, yeah. Now, in that, he also, just to explain this for listeners, because it gets, all gets very confusing, all this stuff, he talks mm. about breaking it down into network charges, um, into um, a whole range of different charges, retail charges, network charges. Uh, there are a number of different charges. And the wholesale charges. And the yeah, wholesale right. charges, so, so yeah. Wholesale, wholesale is the, um, the charge, you know, the part of your bill that you're paying for the actual generating of the electricity, right? Um, the network charges are the transmission lines, you know, the big, the big massive Daleks that stride all across the countryside, and the distribution. Um, so that's the poles and the wires and the substations and so on that are in the cities. That you know, you look out the window and you see those. Um, then there's the retail charge, which is you know the markup that you know for most of us it's the big three. Or most most Australian households are still with either AGL Origin or Energy Australia. Um, uh, and that's the markup that they're putting on top of the cost of actually generating and distributing the electricity. Mm. Um, so what we've seen is that um, that that slice of the bill has really grown to well over a third of the average customer's bill. Um, but also in states, particularly states outside Victoria, the New South Wales, Queensland, we've had massive gold plating of the network side of the story, right? So we spent $75 billion collectively uh, over 10 years building far more network infrastructure than we needed for because of a whole range of factors. But 
largely because regulators were asleep at the wheel and actually failed to notice that these guys were just getting a licence to print money. Um, it's very much in the network company's interest to say that they're going to need to build a whole lot more infrastructure than they really do need to build um, because, you know, they get a guaranteed return on it whenever they do. That's guaranteed money in the bank for them. Yeah, and the... Um Going back again to that when it was privatised, one of the arguments for privatisation was that the SEC at the time and the gas and fuel as well were vertically integrated. They handled all that from the you know, from the point of point of the starting point to the end point when you turned your light on. And that was apparently bad for competition. Um now that they're separate, uh, well they're supposed to be separate, but most of these companies are pretty much also back into vertical integration, aren't they? Yeah, well, that was that was that's something that actually you do see at least some regulators being concerned about because the idea was that you were going to have the generators and the retailers being different players in the market, and of course, you know, the, this is the thing about capitalism, right? Like, you make money in a market if you avoid competition. Like, a perfectly competitive market doesn't deliver a whole lot of profits for the players in it. So the players in a market are always on the lookout for opportunities to avoid actually having to really compete. And that's what the big three did. They were like, oh, I know how we can get around, you know, like, you know, scary business in which we might not know what price we're paying for the wholesaling of the electricity. We can just be the guys that own the the generators. Uh, And that, of course, is another factor in why our whole debate over... Um, the switch to renewable energy has been so complicated because we've got these big kind of guerrilla companies who own so much of the generation. They own a lot of the old coal-fired power stations and they have been really reluctant to sign agreements with new entrants, the new renewable players, um, to actually buy their electricity that they're generating, pass it on to households, you know, the households that they've you know, captured most of the market of as retailers. Um, so they're really re- reluctant to sign what's called power purchase agreements um, because they know that that will undercut the market for the coal that they also happen to own. Mm. And some of the arguments put up, particularly by people like the Institute of Public Affairs, are that uh, that coal battles along on its own and and desperately competes with uh, heavily publicly subsidised, it says, renewable sources. But is that in fact the case? Well, for one thing, they're not paying the cost of the health costs that they impose um, on the community. So uh, at the moment, they're, you know, getting to pollute for free. Um, but that is a massive subsidy. You know, the rest of us are picking up the tab for the health um, costs that they impose, which are pretty bloody substantial. I mean, obviously, the massive health costs imposed by the Hazelwood Mine fire in Victoria is one thing. Uh, in the Hunter Valley, there are millions and millions of dollars health of the health costs associated with coal-fired power every year. So they're not not paying for that. Um, also, uh, you know, in several states, um, state governments give subsidised um, coal to uh, the generators. Um, they don't have to pay the full cost of the water that's involved. Um, so, yeah, that's absolutely not not true. They're getting a free ride. You know, we'll never see a level playing field until they have to pay the cost of their pollution. That's not even getting into climate change. Mm. You will come back to those questions. But just on the question of, of the pricing, uh, the regulator, they the companies put in their bid for what they they think they should make and et cetera, and the regulator makes a decision. But for years it's been argued that the regulator has been over backwards to appease the companies and it hasn't been in the interests of consumers. Is that is that mm. changing at all or is it still the case? 
That's, that's absolutely still the case. It's a real problem. Um, when we researched the Homegrown Power Plan, which is a project that we um, worked on earlier this year to map out how Australia could get from where we're at now to 100% renewable power by 2030, um, one of the things that we did is we went around and researched you know, um, and talked to dozens and dozens of industry experts um, was that they described the whole process of um, deciding what kind of profits should be handed to the network companies, you know, how the retailers, um, you know, what the retailers should be allowed to charge as a battle between consultants at 20 paces, right? And the big guys have a lot more money to spend on consultants than, say, you know, the Victorian Council of Social Services does when it goes into bat um, for mm. um, residents in Victoria, where even though less money has been spent on um, gold plating the network, uh, a lot more money is going into the pockets of the retailers. Like, they've essentially been able to, you know, pick up the difference and pocket it. Yeah, and of course, as you say, there's rigidities anyway in the uh, pricing structure. So, it, you know, as so people, people often say, even with water, gas or electricity, you can use as little as much as you like, but your bill still seems to go through the roof. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so just to give an example of what the alternative is, one of the things that was really interesting in Bruce Mountain's report um, is what he found about what's going on in the ACT, right? So um, in Victoria... Uh, you're paying, on average, if you're a customer of one of the big three, an average of $485 a year in your bill just as that retail markup. In the ACT, there's a regulated retailer. The retail charge in the ACT is just $225. So you're paying $260 a year more in Victoria than you would be if you were living in the ACT. Um, just for the retail component of the bill. Right? So this shows that there's an alternative. So in the ACT, they're on the path to 100% renewable power by 2020, and they've got some of the best value electricity in the country. Mm. Um, so there is an alternative, and that alternative is regulation. Indeed, and and um, Rod Sims, the uh, head of the ACCC, a- a- he came out recently with headlines that he'd attacked privatisation, but what he was really mm-hmm. saying was that governments were asking too much for their assets, and because of the efficiency you gain by the private sector being involved, uh, the government should virtually lower what they want for them so that, ben- so that customers can gain the benefits of that. Now, is that a valid argument? Um, so what he was essentially um, arguing, and I think he's absolutely right, um, is that um, you know to the extent that one can ever mount a valid argument for privatising, say the mm. generation, yeah, it's, of, a t- it's a big um, ask. But go on, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like, let's let's just put aside the, yeah. the questions of you know it being an essential service and a natural monopoly, and probably much easier to. Uh, actually ensure a smooth transition to clean, renewable energy if it was in public hands. Putting that aside, what he said is that most governments have, um, uh, when they have actually privatised these kinds of assets, have privatised them with an eye on maximising their sale price, Mm. not with an eye of actually delivering genuine competition when they were in private hands. So if you want the market to to deliver the low prices that it, you know, theoretically promises, you actually have to get closer to the textbook idea of a market, which is not particularly profitable for the players in it. Nobody wants to buy an uh, asset that's not going to be very profitable. So what the governments have instead done is kind of fatten them up like cows 
to, you know, who are being sent off to market. And that's actually one of the problems in New South Wales, for example, where the networks have been publicly owned, but the government have been treating them as, um, you know, things that they're trying to fatten up so that they can get good sales prices for them. Um, you know, so they've been milking them um, for, you know, as much as they can get. Um, and then, you know, they've been trying to, you know, essentially make sure that they look like they're worth a lot for when they sell them. So that's, that's kind of an unintended side effect in some ways of the whole privatisation agenda is that actually normally when governments are running public assets badly and not in the public interest, it's because they've got an eye to selling them off. Mm. Um, and in South Australia, that's been a real problem. So South Australia, the Liberal government sold off um, the generation and they didn't break it up. Right, so it, and the generation ended up in too few hands in South Australia, and that's what's been allowing South Australia's gas and diesel companies to engage in crazy price gouging, and that's what's actually been pushing up the generation costs in South Australia. So the wholesale side of the market, which particularly affects large manufacturers. Um, so you know, in um, you know Victoria, for example, people are you know concerned about what's the impact on bills going to be of closing down Hazelwood um, for residents the impact's actually unlikely to be very much because the wholesale component is just a small component of the average residence bill. But for big manufacturers, it's a much bigger part of the bill that they pay because they're much bigger energy consumers. So in South Australia, the price gouging by the big gas companies has a real impact on South Australian manufacturing. Yeah, and it makes sense, of course, that if it's still state-owned, those prices haven't gone up anyway and, uh, and people are going to be paying less. Yeah, I mean, you have to you have to do it right if you're owning it publicly. Um, you know, it's not enough to just have it publicly owned. They also have to be well run and they have to be run in the public interest. Um, but, you know, my view is that at least if a government does a bad job of running an essential service and a natural monopoly, we get to vote the government out. Unfortunately, we don't get to vote the 33 out. No. <laughs> we, don't get to vote the, we don't get to vote, you know, a private, particularly with the network, so the poles and wires. You don't want to have two lots of those things. So if you're not having them well run in the public hands or you're not having them well regulated in the public interest, then what other option have we got? And on that point about the, uh, the dirty three... Um, John Ellis Flint was CEO of Santos up until 2008. Now, he came out recently and said that Australia has the most expensive and dirtiest electricity uh, in the uh, OECD world. He said, as long as Australia's energy vision is to have an abundant supply of clean, affordable and reliable electricity, that drives nationwide growth. At the moment, we are far from this vision as we have the most expensive and dirtiest electricity in the world. This is in spite of the fact that Australia has abundant choice of energy feedstocks. Pretty mm. damning from um, someone who was a, a major capitalist in, a, in an energy company. Mm, absolutely. I mean, basically, Australia used to have um, very cheap, very dirty electricity. Now we have very expensive, very dirty electricity. That's what's happened. That's what privatisation and deregulation has delivered us so far. More expensive, still still really dirty. Um, and what we know from um, South Australia, but also in other, other parts of Australia, is that the best way to break the market power of the big guys who have been, you know, overcharging their customers is to actually have more competition from the new renewable players in the market. So we can actually deal with all of these problems by having a well-managed, well-coordinated transition to 100% renewable power um, and actually changing... One, there's one thing that um, 
is, uh, you know, it's a bit obscure. Not many people kind of know about it or pay attention to it. But there's this one sentence called the National Electricity Objective that all of the regulators, all of the key players have to sort of treat as their Bible, you know, kind of in the constitution of, of all of the people who are responsible for actually making the system work. Uh, it's called the National Electricity Objective. At the moment, it doesn't refer to affordability for customers. Um, and it doesn't refer to the need for the sector to actually be clean and not, you know, damage the planet or our health. Um, so if we change that national electricity objective and actually said that it was the job of all of these players to drive an affordable transition to 100% renewable power, then all of these guys would actually have something much stronger at their backs when they were going into these battles of consultants at 20 paces. Um, because no matter how long, and, you know, like some of these... Um, arguments between the companies and the regulators. You know, the companies are like paying billions of dollars on lawyers. They're putting in like 44,000 page submissions. Like it's really hard for little guys to compete with that. Mm. At least if we change the national electricity objective, um, then all of the regulators would know, oh, actually, you know, I don't really care what's in your 44,000 page submission because it's my job to deliver an affordable and clean energy system. Yeah, just a minor oversight that they forgot to mention domestic users, obviously, in the objective. Um, mm. Yeah, the, going, moving on to, well, we mentioned Hazelwood. Um, the, the fact that it's about to build, maybe maybe about to be closed, but either way, um, there are a couple of factors here. The, the cost of rehabilitation, which often falls back on the state purse, and also the transition for local people affected, and certainly there has to be a plan for that, but... It seems to me the state is picking up a lot of that where I would have thought the company should be responsible for a lot of that work. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think um, state governments have failed to be good landlords um, of uh, power generation companies and, and really of any coal mining. So, you know, across the country, um, there's very few companies that have actually been charged upfront bonds that are sufficient to cover the cost of rehabilitating um, both the coal-fired power station sites, um, you know, which often get, a, you know, a whole lot of toxic build-up in them, um, but also of the mines. And, you know, mm. Hazelwood, the Hazelwood fire shows just how dangerous it is to not impose those kinds of obligations on companies. Um, and that's why we need to actually have a planned national transition out of coal-fired power and make sure that we put in place the, you know, all of the measures that we need to make sure that that's a just and fair transition, that workers are looked after, that the community um, gets the support that it deserves. Because, you know, in the Latrobe Valley, they've been powering Victoria for a long, long time now. You know, they're still recovering from the... 17,000 jobs that were lost when Kenneth yeah. um, pushed through the privatisation. Um, you know, we were told that that would deliver cheaper prices. It hasn't. It has delivered job losses. They're still recovering from it. Like, they really deserve um, a, a much better um, uh, coordinated, better funded plan than was in place, say, in Port Augusta in South Australia, um, where, you know, the community's been campaigning for years to get uh, solar thermal power up. Um, to replace the coal-fired power that they knew was going to shut down. Um, and then, you know, the company Alinta announced a snap closure. You know, it's very possible that that could happen on Wednesday next week from NG with Hazelwood. Um, and the community is just saying, we knew this was coming. We weren't fighting it happening. We just wanted you to put an alternative source of jobs and cleaner energy in place. Um, and governments, you know, kind of failed to come to the party until it was too late.
We really need to turn that story around. So if they just walk away, then really it's up to the government to pick up the bill or else people just fade away or something? Well, I think it's absolutely essential that NG are forced to meet all of their obligations for fully rehabilitating the um, both the site of Hayeswood and the associated mine um, completely to community standards. Um, and uh, there's other measures, I think, that can be put in place there. So I think that there's some potential for making sure that anybody um, who has worked with the mine is first in line for mine site rehabilitation jobs, for example. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of measures that you know you could do, and obviously you'd have to design this in collaboration with um, the relevant union and with the community groups to ensure that um, communities actually have a say in what the future of the site is, um, and you know in making sure that there's you know retraining offered for workers ahead of time. Um, the company absolutely has to be held to account. You know, so obviously it has to be. Um, responsible for pay, paying its full entitlements um, to all of its workers. Um, you know, I think that any company that actually wants to stay in the energy system in Australia, um, and NG still does, for example, it owns gas-fired power in South Australia. Mm. Um, any any company that wants to stay in Australia has an obligation to actually start ret- offering retraining to its entire workforce in renewable technologies. Um, some of those skills are very transferable um, for a whole bunch of its workforce. So, you know, any responsible government company that's operating in energy in Australia needs to know that the writing is on the wall, right? We're going to make this transition to renewables. Um, it's not a being a responsible employer unless it actually op- offers those retraining opportunities so that people can have a smooth transition over to other kinds of jobs. Yeah, and I suppose we're getting out of time, but we can't go without mentioning South Australia, which you just mentioned in one way. Um, But there's been the usual suspects have had apoplectic fits um, since the problem there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Is, in fact, fact, um, the whole renewable energy the real problem over there, or is it something else, do you think? The real problem in South Australia is a handful of companies that have way too much market power. That's what's been pushing up prices. And actually, there is plenty of evidence that um, the increase in wind power in South Australia has cut down the amount that the gas price, um, sorry, the gas companies are able to price gouge. Um, so it's cut the price spikes from the gas companies that have too much market power in South Australia. It's actually helping; it's not hurting. Mm. Um, you won't obviously hear that from um, the fossil fuel lobby and their their friends in the media and in some governments. Um, but that's that's the reality, yeah. um, and it's um, you know absolutely essential that we have a well planned transition to renewables. You know there are some technical challenges as we make that transition. We need to make sure that there's plenty of supply of on demand energy like batteries, solar thermal, that sort of thing, um, that match the now very cheap um, supply of uh, energy from wind and solar power. But the reality is. Um, we have an ageing fleet of coal-fired power stations. They are going to have to be replaced regardless. The most expensive way of replacing them would be to build more coal-fired power stations um, or, you know, like to replace them all with gas. Uh, wind and solar, wind is already cost-competitive, so wind is already cheaper to build than new coal. Um, so if you were just going to leave it to the market, you would get a hell of a lot more wind. Coal is actually a really bad match with wind power, right? It can't wrap up and down quickly enough 
to match the variable supply from wind. Um, so we're looking at an entirely new paradigm where you have uh, wind and solar-dominated systems um, with complementary technologies like batteries, solar thermal, pumped hydro, all that sort of thing to stabilise the system. All of these problems um, that you know you get with having much more variable um, supply in the system, we know all of the solutions to these. And it's simply the fact that you've had governments who are trying to stick their head in the sand and you know ignore the need for an inevitable shift to renewables um, that has actually held up putting all of the solutions in place. The but just to be clear, yeah. in South Australia, power went down because a whole bunch of transmission towers were taken out by storm. That's right. right? So blaming... Um, renewables for storms that were caused by very extreme weather. You know, in a world where climate change we know is going to be bringing more and more extreme weather, it's a little bit like blaming like the lifeboats on the Titanic for sinking it. Yeah, there's sort of an irony in that those with their heads in those tar sands you talked about um, are crying out for more fossils, so rather ignoring the, the very cause of what is now becoming almost normal weather, the extreme weather we just keep getting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's a the note. Titanic sinking. What we need is more icebergs. <laughs> That's right. No, but you're okay there. They're melting, you see. <laughs> All's well. Okay, Miriam, look, we're going to leave it there. We've really only scratched the surface, though. I'm sure we'll get you on again because um, we need to have these sort of discussions. But thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, radio. Miriam Lyons there, who's from Get Up. I kept I set mop up earlier, which was a sort of for, which was part of Bugger Up years ago, and I worked for it for a year or so. Um, but there you are. Okay, we've got to go. I'm getting the wind up from Andy. He's been he's been very nasty. <laughs> <laughs> he's, well, you've turned nasty, yeah, Andy. <laughs> next week, Andy. Tell no, I don't, next week's housing. That's what it is. There's also that rally coming up, and I'm, I've, I've left the details at home. But I'm sure Joe will tell you all about it because he's into organising it. No, so uh, the public housing rally. So stay tuned, and Joe will tell you all about that. And uh, we'll tell you more about it next week as well when we do housing, and um, we'll have April break or someone from the Housing with the Asian Action Group in among other things. Got to go. It's 9.59 on one rose. o'clock. What's the other clock say? You both say the yeah, same. Yeah, look at this computer one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. This That's is it. Say Al goodbye, Bang Andy. Bang thank, Andy, Jack look, thank, and thank yourself, Andy, for ah, doing a great job. No worries. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Kevin.